Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Daniel Shapiro, Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at West Virginia University, a founding member of the Bleeding Heart Libertarians blog, and author of Is the Welfare State Justified from Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Oh, thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. I'm a big fan and a faithful listener. Yeah, you have a fascinating essay we'll be discussing today about the relationship between egalitarianism and libertarianism. So uh, as, a, as a generally, people would think that they're not just opposed, but fundamentally opposed. Uh, but you think that th- that's a wrong way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. The, thank you. The title of the essay is Egalitarianism and Libertarianism are closer than you might think. And so the basic um, idea in a nutshell is that egalitarianism and libertarianism clearly are very different political principles. So egalitarians talk mainly about fairness, reducing certain kind of inequalities. Libertarianism tends to talk about maximizing individual liberty, reducing state coercion. But I argue that the institutional implications of their principles are much closer than you think. Specifically, I argue that if you compare certain forms of uh, market alternatives to central welfare state institutions, egalitarians should actually end up agreeing, based on their own principles with libertarians, that the alternatives to the welfare state are, are better. So that's the, basically the elevator pitch of this. Libertarianism can mean, just that term, can mean a fairly wide range of views from, you know, say, anarchism through classical liberalism and so on. Does the same apply to egalitarianism? Is it, is there a kind yes, that you're talking yes. about um, here? Yes. Yeah, so thank you for that. So, uh, that was one of the first things I was going to talk about. So when I say egalitarianism, I mean the kind of egalitarianism that was predominant in contemporary political philosophy circa oh, 1996 to 2005, because that's when I was writing the book. It's sometimes called, I think, misleadingly for reasons I'll mention, lucky egalitarianism. It's not the kind of egalitarianism identified with people like Elizabeth Anderson, who you've had on your show, which is called relational egalitarianism. If you want, at the end, we could talk a little about what I would hazard a guess would be the implications of her views. I don't really think they really are going to be that different. But when I was writing the book, Anderson was around, but I don't think she was as big. Lucky egalitarianism was everywhere. I mean, it really dominated contemporary political philosophy. So that's sort of the pony I I chose to ride on, as it were. Um, Does that help? Based on that? Well, exactly. The, I need to explain so, what it is, of course. Yeah, yeah. because it's, I find it very interesting. Uh, um, I like. I I was a little unfamiliar with the the brute the option and the brute, uh, so like that that would be interesting to get into. Yeah, well, let me let me um, let me first talk about in a th- thumbnail the the alternatives very bare boned, and then I want then I'll get into the structure of the alternative. So um, the welfare state. The central institutions of the welfare state are basically social insurance. That's government-provided and administered um, retirement and health insurance. So we're talking about programs like Social Security, national health insurance, and we're talking about um, government welfare or government aid to the poor and the needy. The the more market alternatives I'm talking about are, I'm going to, a shorthand I give is the term private compulsory insurance. Now, let me explain. That's just a shorthand. But basically, the idea is the provision of retirement savings, health insurance, 
would be provided by the market with competing plans and policies. The government's role will be limited to two things. One, there would be some kind of safety net. So um, there would be, for instance, some kind of minimum pension guarantee. So if you didn't have adequate retirement savings, the government would have something. And the government would require that you have some kind of pension savings account and have some kind of health insurance. I can fill in more. That's very bare bone. I can fill in more meat as I go along. Um, so I think I didn't really argue much in the piece that libertarians should prefer this. I think it's clear they should. It's not our ideal. Our best thing for us would be voluntary insurance and voluntary safety nets. But I think it would be a big improvement from a libertarian point of view because you reduce the government's role in healthcare and um, retirement and, and um, give people a lot more freedom to choose their lives. Okay. So what I want to going to argue is that egalitarians should think that this market of health insurance, this market of um, of um, market insurance, is clearly better than social insurance, and that there's at least a, a sort of a stalemate between private charities and government welfare. All right, so let me talk. Is it okay if I just talk now about the structure of egalitarianism? Okay, so the basic idea of um, egalitarianism is inequalities that result from no choice or fault of your own are unjust and ought to be rectified in some way. And there are two parts to this. They have a two-part theory of justice. On one side, where people make genuine or uncoerced choices, people need, as a matter of um, respect for their capacity to shape their own lives, freedom to act on those choices. And fairness requires that people be held responsible for the cost of their choices. And the flip side of people being held responsible for the cost of their choices is people are entitled to the benefits or the the advantages they gain through choices. On the other hand, um, where what's called, this gets to your question, Trevor, when something like brute luck reigns rather than choice, then we have... um, we have some kind of injustice in order to be rectified in some way. And the reason for the word brute, this comes from Ronald Dworkin, who's probably the seminal figure here, a law professor, in case some of your listeners haven't heard, very important law professor and political philosopher, who I think died, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I think, something like that. Um, anyway, Dworkin makes this really important distinction between option luck and brute luck. Option luck or risks are the kind of luck or risks that you you, it's reasonable to take into account in your choices, whereas brute luck is something you just you just have, you just really have no choice in the matter. Okay, and most egalitarians think advantages resulting from option luck are belong on the choice side. Okay, so I have three kind of problems in the paper. If you want, I can start to go into the first one, or if you have further questions, I can pause now, whichever you, whatever you think is best. You want me to keep going? Uh, yeah, you're fine. I was just going to clarify just so we d- we're clear here. So b- basically, you could have a big discussion about, and I'm sure there is in the literature, what is option and what is brute. But the concept is is just generally something that, like, you you if you decided to pursue um, – like, I don't know. So if you decided to put a lot of money into a stock and then you lost all that money um, and then that made you on the bottom end of the distribution, that's different than if you were born without legs, essentially. Right. That's right. You're getting to some of the examples. That's exactly right. Right. 
I guess I'm curious about how distinct these need to be in the egalitarian project um, in the sense that it seems like anything that is option luck, so it's stuff that I would be responsible for. Is it option luck? Is that the term? Yeah. is also going to contain a strong element of brute luck, right? Like I could I could have said, you know, I am going to make the decision, fully considered decision to um, drop out of college and pursue a career as a musician, you know, and I have no musical talent. It would be a terrible idea. And in most possible worlds, it would be something where I would end up in a worse place than had I stuck around and it would be my fault. But it's also possible that my terrible musicianship sparked just the kind of, you know, it, it hit on some fad, it got exactly what it needed, and I became like the next big thing. Um, and and so suddenly my choice looks incredible. No, this, you is, know? this is good because you've anticipated almost in one question, the first problem I'm going to run into, but I, I, if, if you, I mean, it depends what you want me to do. I could, I was going to sort of try to structure what they do on one side, but I, the way, where I end up going is basically the whole thing just gets reciprocal and then mutual influence each other. And the reason I think it's important is it ends up really being hard to justify redistribution. So this is like a more systematic problem before you even get to the comparisons. So if you're okay, I could, but you're actually pretty much, you know, this must be the philosophy background, Aaron. Right. You pretty much, you are, both of you guys have the philosophy background. Um, there must be, you, you got to the, you got to the heart of it, but just in case, since I'm not sure our, our listeners would see the jump, let me, if you don't mind me being kind of, well, the joke is an analytic, like anal analytic philosopher here and kind of do the, do the, do the, um, were you going to say, <laughs> look like you're the virtual making a job. Okay. All right. All right. So, um, so for um, egalitarians, there's certain paradigm things that are on the option and choice luck or the chosen side of the spectrum, and there's certain paradigm things that are on the unchosen side. Okay. So the paradigm ones of, of on the option luck side are different conceptions of the good life or different kind of ambitions and voluntarily acquired tastes and preferences. And um, based on this, egalitarians think that Inequalities or advantages, disadvantages resulting from efforts, different income or leisure trade-offs, different income or consumption trade-offs are on the chosen side of the spectrum. Also, occupational choices matter. You sort of hinted that with your dropout of high school thing, right? You know, um, that depends on your ambitions and life goals. Um, and uh, you also hit upon it with your business example. There's disagreement among egalitarians about this. Most of them, and I think the more consistent, think of business losses and profits as on the chosen side because it's a voluntarily assumed gamble. You know, it depends on your age and your example. Like how were you, 15, 18, we could argue about that. But if you're a competent adult and you know what you're doing, it's like a voluntarily assumed example or it's an opportunity seized or ignored. On the other hand, the paradigm examples, you got to this Trevor with the born without legs, Paradigm examples of of things on the unchosen side are things like your native abilities, your native or genetic abilities or talents, your race or your sex, unproduced natural resources. Um, So they tend to think inequalities resulting from that are unjust. 
as are inequalities from the initial start in life, since we don't choose our parents. So if you're born a poor kid in Detroit and Trevor, and you're born a wealthy kid in Silicon Valley, Aaron, that make, you know, that's, that's an unchosen event. Okay. And then there are things that they don't know what to think about. There's psychological characteristics like how grumpy and cheerful am I? That can affect your ability to succeed. They're not sure what to say about that. What, how, what's my ability to deal with adversity, my sense of self-efficacy? They're sort of unsure about that. Okay. So my first, my first argument with the problem with them is that the welfare state is clearly redistributed. It's, you know, Social Security takes from workers, it goes to retirees, welfare takes from more affluent people, gives to um, But the problem is, once we start to think about these cases, virtually everything reciprocally influences one another. I agree with you, Aaron, that's exactly, I think, the problem. Because let's say we say, okay, my ambition and preference, you know, my the ambitions I have and my conception of the good life, that's chosen. But then... Maybe I had that because I have a certain trait I was born with, right? And you could just switch it around for the other one. I have these traits I was born with. Maybe I'm naturally not that hardworking, but I work at it. And I, you know, I sort of get more ambitious. And so that's on the chosen side. So you start to do this and everything looks like a mix of chosen and unchosen. Now, the reason this matters is we have to think, okay, so any coercive redistribution, what's going to happen given that what we need is a causal theory. Like we need some causal theory that'll say, okay, this we can tease out what where this kind of income and wealth is on the chosen side and where's on the unchosen side. But I've read Lucky Galtarian literature. I've read quite a bit of it, and there isn't a theory. There's some theories about other things. Dworkin has this interesting theory, like about a hypothetical insurance market. Like if you were um, didn't know your advantage or disadvantage, you all had equal purchasing power. What would we choose? But that's not really relevant. They make claims about it. I really don't think they have an answer to this. And the, the problem is, then if I start to think of a coercive redistribution, well, it's going to take some or perhaps a lot of money from people who are entitled of it and give it to people, you know, who are victims of bad brute luck. So that's injustice. But on the other hand, if we let things alone, so to speak, and we rely on voluntary transfers, some people who are sitting on these, you know, on income and wealth that is not due to their choices are not going to voluntarily give it to the people that are unlucky. So either way, you have injustice. And so, sorry, it's the long, it's if I was too long-winded, but basically it's coming around to the answer that the first real problem is, I think this is one way in which the gap between the two theories gets very small. Because libertarians would say, state redistribution except in special cases, unjust. But egalitarians can't say it's just. They, they, don't, they don't have to condemn it as unjust. So that's the first That's the first gap. I mean, wouldn't they just say, yes, you're correct. Uh, you need to design a welfare state well. I mean, you're right that we shouldn't be giving money to undeserving people and taking money from deserving people. So this is just a matter of, of design of the state, not a question of – something to disagree in principle. Well, but it seems to me that just pushes, unless I'm misunderstanding, pushes the question, the problem one step back because designing it still means you're designing some policy that's going to take from some people and give to others. And if you don't know which people or what percentage of their income and wealth is the type that's legitimate and illegitimate, it seems like you're the same. Unless I'm missing something, Trevor, it seems like the same problem just pops up. It seems to me, too, that there's a, a fundamental problem for the egalitarian project in terms of, I guess, operationalizing 
its theory into a welfare state because if if they take these kinds of luck seriously and deservingness and fairness seriously, then they necessarily have to create a welfare state that takes from some, gives to others along the lines of this particular conception of justice. And so that it has to assess fairness and justice and acquisition and deservingness and so on. Um, but as opposed to, say, doing something where you say, like, well, we're just going to, if you make above a certain amount, we are going to take this percentage away from you flat out. It's just like, you know, it's just math. And then if you make below a certain amount, we're going to give you this. We're not going to assess your your worthiness of receiving it in fairness terms. But that would be that would be a rejection of their core beliefs in the, in the nature of justice, which would be a problem. But on the other hand, it feels like the if we go into something, no matter what kind of institution or metric or decision-making process you have for determining deservingness of one's wealth and worthiness of of redistribution, that's going to be subject to, you know, as we talked about, like how complicated this question is. It seems like anyone, no matter what the decision-making process, is going to be able to sit down and come to any answer they want by just choosing to highlight certain kinds of luck or downplay other kinds of luck. You know, so do all the people who didn't get jobs out of college during COVID deserve redistribution because that was luck, that was like brute luck? Or do they not because they should have been anticipating that something like COVID could happen and been preparing for it? And so you end up with decision makers basically being able to just kind of pick and choose however they want to, which obviously would run counter to egalitarian principles. Is there, I mean, is there like a third way or are they trapped between these options? Well, the best I can do, and I, I really, sh- I, I should have done this when I set out the theory, I should have actually explained the key example from Kim Lecca, which really motivated this because I actually gave you the what and not the why. So why did they end up with this division? Because you might say, all right, but it's, they just did this. Why, what did the, so one of the seminal, one of the seminal examples is a philosopher, Will Kimlicka. I think he was teaching in Canada. He may still be there. And he wrote a very important book called Contemporary Political Philosophy and Introduction. I don't know if you've read it, but it's a really good book, actually. I think very highly of it. Anyway, there's this seminal example. This is probably not going to answer your question, but I want to at least explain what motivated this so it doesn't sound. So here's the example. We imagine two people, and they have the same natural background. And they have the same talents and abilities. So we've we've done that. And we give them the same amount of stuff. I think in same amount of resources. I think in Lick's sample, it's land, but it doesn't really matter. Okay. But there's what the differences between them are this. One of these people, their idea of the good life is just to play tennis as much as possible. You know, they want to just work as little as they can to be able to play tennis, maybe build a tennis court. Pejoratively, you could call them a tennis bomb if you want, right? Okay. Then the other person, she's an entrepreneurial gardener. So she takes her land, she grows vegetables, she just has this good, she has this good um, insight in business, and she gets a lot wealthier. And this is almost a quote from Kimlicka. Kimlicka says, if we allow the market to work freely, the gardener will be wealthier than the tennis player. And, and, if I were to sound like a New Yorker where I grew up, the, the response would be, and so what's the problem? You know, that would be, there's, there's, 
this seems like a perfectly just sort of thing. And the, the reason I like this example a lot, think of all the things in it. First of all, they have different occupations. They have different work-leisure trade-offs. They have different income consumption trade-offs, right? They just differ in their ambitions, right? And so, and this sounds to me, sounds to you almost Nozickian, right? Except it's Nozick with an egalitarian twist. You're, st- you're, you're starting with the same kind of egalitarian background, and then it just turns out one of them's more ambitious or more hardworking. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what motivated them. So it was, and I was at a uh, IHS conference with, in, in Pimlico 92 and, um, you know, he hadn't changed his mind about that. He said there, yeah, he said, he said, I think inequalities in income, a lot of them are justified. He, he said he had more problems with wealth because he thought of wealth as kind of building up over generations and inherited wealth and stuff like that. But he said, yeah, I mean, uh, if you have, you can tie inequalities to income to choices people made. So it's, I don't know if it's answering your question, but that's at least the motivation. It's like these kind of examples seem very compelling. So these kind of inequalities seem. Well, it's it's really interesting that you bring up Kimlicka because Trevor and I have mentioned several times on the show. There's the it's footnote forty two in that oh, book. God, I remember that. where he. <laughs> Oh, well, it's, it, we have remembered footnote 42 has, I found it in college okay. and have remembered it ever since where That's he funny. says, and I don't, I don't remember which theory he's discussing, but he basically says, you will search in vain through these, these theories. He's talking about Rawls, for I think, actually. A discussion. Oh, right. Yes. He's talking about Rawls, but it, it applies more broadly. He says, you'll search in vain through all of this for discussions of how this would be implemented in practice or whether it can be. Um, and, and that they just don't seem to care about that. And this seems like, I guess my, the thing that I was getting at is this seems like a real problem for egalitarians in terms of the putting their ideas into practice, because if you invest a sovereign or an institution or a decision maker with the ability to decide who is worthy and who is not worthy for purposes of redistribution, and the criteria are as complicated. So the tennis player, right? Like that tennis player also could have just stumbled into being the best tennis player in the world and made a killing just by wanting to kick around and play tennis. If you have to determine that like heavily caught ca- heavy causal density, I suppose, then the, the sovereign or decision maker has tremendous power to be either arbitrary because they can, they can just kind of choose what they emphasize or to be corrupt by saying, well, the people who I like are the deserving ones and the others aren't. And it seems like the problem is that the, the egal, so the egalitarians could respond saying, like, no, you have to follow the decision making rubric in a principled way. But it feels like the decision making rubric, even in the best circumstances, is so potentially fuzzy and so like epistemically complex that it would be hard to even know. If, if we were getting it right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, in one sense, I'm not going to disagree with it, but I want it to be fair to them. The part where they did spend a lot of time, and this would, I don't want to spend a lot of time in this because that's actually, I'd invite people to read the book because a lot of the book is about healthcare because that's one of the most complicated things. But Dworkin and another guy, Norman Daniels, spent a long time arguing for national health insurance because they thought that was the most important thing. And they also have some, there's also some discussion um, in Daniels about Social Security. So what they did, to be fair, although, is to look at some central welfare institutions and try to justify them. 
Um, I'm going to raise some problems for that. Probably the next thing I'll get to. But I don't, I'm not aware of this, this global sort of issue that I raised about like the problems with redistribution first. But I don't, I don't see what I, the, the awareness I did see about it was more local. Like there's a lot of argument. Well, what about expensive tastes? That was a big discussion. I suppose I'm stuck with, for some reason, having my good to survive well, I have to have champagne and caviar for some reason. I have like this bizarre psychological disability. I'm stuck with my there's a lot of discussion about that. There was a lot of local discussion, but the global problem I didn't see, at least as of when I start, stopped working on it, I didn't see a problem. What I did see, to be fair to them, is there is a lot of discussion about specific welfare state institutions, which they try to justify or rationalize, however you want to do that. There is that. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like they didn't do anything because a lot of Dworkin's writings are on here's how certain institutions and here's what a fair distribution of wealth would do based on this hypothetical insurance market and so forth. So. I found footnote 42 because Aaron and I have emailed it to each other at different times. So the, the, the kind of kicker is – um true definition of a nerd here. Yeah. Yes. It, says, uh, <laughs> it says, it seems clear that liberal egalitarian thinkers or liberal egalitarian theories have operated with over-optimistic assumptions about state capacity. And you're like, oh, really? No way. <laughs> the inherent limitations in the capacity of the state to achieve social objectives have been theorized by social scientists both on the right and the left. But this literature has not yet permeated the philosophical debates. One looks in vain in the corpus of the major left liberal political philosophers, Rawls, Jorkin, Cohen, Romer, Arniston, Ackerman, for a discussion of the extent to which the state can or cannot fulfill the principles of justice they endorse. Yeah, we always regard that as quite a it's quite a whopper if you think about it. Yeah, I, I actually did not did not do any public choice stuff in the book at all. My objections are with, without public choice. I mean, you could do that, of course. But um, well, I mean, this related to what you're not, saying. I think here that's not. I mean, it's not project. just public choice. It's it's sort of what Aaron asked. It's also um, can the state determine egalitarian perform the, by the principles of egalitarianism. So that, let's move on to your next part too on that the, with the uh, – with the, your next critique is about the possibilities of social insurance, private social insurance too, yeah, which, yeah, could, which yeah. Should, maybe egalitarian should endorse given this first problem. Yeah, yeah. OK. So let me, let me, um, let me go on to that. So the, um, I want, there's, two, there's two kind of reasons and I can do them separately so I don't talk too long. It's your, your call on this. But two kind of reasons why I think um, – Social insurance should be viewed as more unfair than this market, this more market alternative. So the first has to do with competition. So um, in a market, you have competing plans and policies. Now, in social insurance, you're going to have even none of that or less. Now, why is that significant? Because restrictions on competition are restrictions on choices that reflect different views of the good life. Let me give some examples so this won't be so abstract. So let's start with healthcare. So time preference, right? Suppose I have a, let's try to make sure I get this right, the high, high rate of time preference or is it low? I greatly prefer the present over the future. That's high rate of time preference, right? Then I'm going to gravitate towards a kind of healthcare policy that's going to focus more on immediate needs, not long-term needs, vice versa for low time preference. Risk aversion. This is another big, there's another way in which people's views differ a lot. So if I am very risk averse, I'm going to probably want a very comprehensive, low deductible health insurance, even if it's more expensive, that covers everything, not just catastrophes, but even more routine and minor and predictable expenses. 
Where if I'm the other way around, I'm less risk averse, I'll say, well, catastrophic only, that's fine. I'll use savings, out-of-pocket expenses for the more predictable. Um, occupational choices are clearly relevant. You know, if I certain occupations are more risky than others, then I might want to allocate savings over time. And moral and metaphysical views are very important. Like my view about the meaning and value of life and death and my view about the importance or unimportance of pain and suffering. That could affect, like, do I want life-prolonging procedures? What about contraception, abortion? If we had physician-assisted suicide, which I think we only have in one state, but in, in other places they do physician suicide. But here's the thing. National health insurance... Um, it depends on the form, but either it doesn't allow any of it. So think of single payer. There are no market-based alternatives. Now, if you're affluent enough, you can pay taxes for national health insurance and you can, there's a, there's a market for supplemental, but the less affluent people aren't really able to do that. Now, other forms of national health insurance have some more choice. I'm thinking of think places like Germany, Holland, France, they have what's called nonprofit sickness funds, but the government policies pretty much mandate or require that the policies and the um, and the pricing is very similar. And the United States is like this too, though they're not in technically like Europe. But even before Obamacare, man, federal and state mandates pretty much made high deductible, um, catastrophic only insurance virtually illegal. And since Obamacare, it's arguably worsened. Um, I can say a word or two. This might be the place to put some flesh on the bones, what the proposal I have. It's actually very influenced by a former colleague of yours, John Goodman, who wrote this book with Gerald Musgrave called Patient Power. I think he's the first one to maybe the second, one of the few to propose these health savings accounts. Yeah. So the, the, the basic problem right now is the U.S. has two very strong biases, which wouldn't, which are unusual, to say the least. One is in favor of comprehensive insurance. And the reason for that is Except for a small amount of money you can put in health savings accounts, which you lose at the end of the year if you don't use it, money paid out of pocket is taxed. Money paid by insurance isn't. So no surprise, we all gravitate towards insurance, which is comprehensive. The other weird thing is it's it's employer-based, and that's because premiums paid for that your employer provides are sheltered on the employer-employee side, whereas you do it individually, it's not sheltered or not sheltered much. So the, what I adopt from Goodman is open up the health savings accounts, expand the limits, accumulate them over time, um, and give a tax credit for the premiums regardless of how you purchase it. It's not the worst reflecting how weird – when I say it's weird, here's the thing to think about, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners know. Think about auto insurance. It doesn't pay for your tune-ups, right? That's, that would be very strange. Health insurance doesn't pay when you get spring cleaning. Pet insurance doesn't pay for fluffy nail tr- Fluffy's nail trims, you know. Um, and in most areas, we don't get insurance from our employer. That's just very strange. We're locked. It's, it creates kind of job lock. So the the greater choice in the proposal I have would be this would be the the thing. And the safety net would be you can give a refundable tax credit for people who don't pay income tax. So it's like a health care voucher for the poor to buy like a high – high deductible insurance and you can some people have uninsurable risks you can subsidize that um, with so that's so you're you're arguing that the egalitarian should be for this uh more than uh a national health care plan that is one size fits all for a egal- for these egalitarian reasons but um i mean i think most of them would say 
it it doesn't work. Like I mean, and the concessions you're you're making, for example, to a safety net is sort of demonstrating their point of like what won't work. Like you won't have a you you'll be a lot of people who slip through the cracks, a lot of people who get a bad form of healthcare uh, because they get the safety net. And you know, Kenneth Arrow showed that you 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 can't have effective markets in healthcare. Um, is that is that that seems relevant to whether or not is that they prefer the social insurance of the state because they think it works in a way that a private system would collapse. Yeah. Um, let me think about what to say about that. I don't know, but the, um, this is a little tricky. This is an area where it gets tricky. So we don't have actual market health insurance, so we don't have a lot to point to. What we can do, and, and when I, I gave, at 2007, I had an APA session in my book, and Jerry Gauss, I was blessed to have Jerry Gauss as one of the commentators, and he worried about this. He said, my worry about this is you're supposed to be doing real, real comparisons, but it sounds like you're kind of doing like a real ideal because it's there's no, you you argue, and for reasons I just mentioned, that the U.S. is in real market health insurance, and a lot of other people have argued this, but you're just you're just saying this is how it would work. And the best I can say here, I think the best anybody can say is I'm just trying to use how markets and insurance work in analogous areas. The safety net stuff is, I don't know if I want to call it a concession. It's because it's basically, I'm not proposing pure free market health insurance. I am not, I don't think you can get egalitarians to go along with that. And it's not, but it's, it's, it still would not be social insurance because you wouldn't have the government mainly involved in the provision. Um, you would mainly have a market and the government would just do the safety net, like I said, um, and would get rid of these distortions. So it look a lot more like insurance and other markets. Um, that's probably the best I can do. I don't know what else anybody can do when they're proposing something that looks radical. I mean, the closest we have in the U.S. now is there's starting to be these cracks, like we're starting to get like some places people are just doctors are opting out of insurance. I didn't even anticipate that. that's that's a different model. It's like the carve out model. We'll just doctors will flee the system and start offering. You know, did you guys read Reason's interview with this you know, direct well, we, primary care? We had yeah. we had a yeah. uh, doctor Ryan Newhoffel was on an episode about right. for five years ago called yeah. uh, Why can't you email your doctor? He's a direct primary right. care for right. the physician. Right. Right. Does, does that does that address? Do you feel like that addresses? Yeah, your no, question? I think that I think I don't, I don't know. It's the best we can I, do. The best we can do is just say it's analogous and we're not requiring any radical changes in human nature. It's not utopian in that sense. We're not imagining the government becomes a benevolent, you know, like a uh, angels. You know, well, one good thing about your argument in the, your paper is that, I mean, you're, you're kind of saying, you know, I, I've twice said here's what the egalitarians would say, but you're kind of saying like just – Let's let's accept that this is how free markets in these areas would work. I mean, because that's um, don't you think your principles would have you prefer them to the state if, in fact, free markets work in this way, right? So, like, it's not really about arguing about the functionality of free market. It's saying if it does provide diverse healthcare, diverse retirement plans, diverse social insurance, isn't that better on your terms? Which is what I really like about your your essay. Yeah, it's one way to put it. I mean, I do, as I recall, I'm trying to remember if they do. Raise these market failure things. I don't think they do. I think Dworkin, if I recall his argument, is that the kind of information that insurance has is really unfair. And that's another argument. I won't go into that because that would be a long. All I can say is, again, I'll make a plug for the book. I have like 30 to 40 pages on Dworkin because it's just very complicated. Right. Right. I, I do have one potential, I guess, 
if I put my yeah, egalitarian hat do. on, one potential concern that I think distinguishes that might distinguish the social versus the private at a more fundamental level is the mission and or intent of the actors involved in the sense that a lot of political philosophy, including a lot of egalitarian political philosophy, sees the state as like the instantiation of justice in the world. It is it is that mechanism. We have a theory of justice and then we have this state that we've set up, a government we've set up, and its job is to try to move the world in that direction, you know, and so libertarians have this too, to the extent that, you know, non-anarchist libertarians, that the state's justice is respecting rights and the state is what protects our rights and so on. Um, but it would seem then that if we have a social insurance, so we have, say, single payer, then it is, it's being administered by the state and the state's job is to do what's just and do what's good for us. That's what it nominally exists for. Whereas private providers, their job is to turn a profit. Like that's what they exist for. And so as a result, when if I enter, I go out into the world and I need health insurance, say, I know the state is going to give it to me out of the goodness of its heart or because that's what it was elected to do. But I might worry that the private market is going to give it to me instead based on whether they think I will be profitable or not. And that these are just like very, very different approaches to the provision of services, which then might play out in in bad ways or ways that lead us away from at least egalitarian conceptions of justice. Yeah, um, this is really the intention outcome distinction. I think that's what you're alluding to or pointing to, because it's like saying, okay, they had the right intentions. Um and that should weigh much more. But I would think it's this is giving too much weight to symbolism over substance. That's the, maybe the way I put it. It's like saying, okay, here we have national health insurance. And there are other problems which I haven't mentioned. I haven't mentioned the production side. Most national health insurance rations, catastrophic care, which leads to some really horrible outcomes. This is I didn't even do this in the paper, but – um, this is actually one of the really strongest egalitarian arguments, which is this is who, who would gain, who gains from this? You, we gain, you guys. If we have, we, if there's a waiting list, we have the knowledge and connection to work the system and get to the front of the line. One thing we know, we know this about a certain thing, when they're non-market forms of egalitarian, the smart and the, mo and the really the connected do well. So just that's, I don't really do that in the paper, but, but going back to your point, Aaron, which is, I think it's just symbolism over substance. Is what don't we want? It justice seems to require on their part that we have it's legitimate for people with different conceptions of the good to put that into practice. And national health insurance just doesn't do it, and it also rations. But it, the, what I think my system is better is it's trying to cover both the both parts they want. It has a market for choices, and it has vic something for victims of bad brute luck. So if you're not paying any income tax. Because you're poor and unlucky, you get this basically it makes them a healthcare voucher. If you have an uninsurable risk, I think in Goodman's book, it's like a high-risk pool, which gets subsidized. So you have, in other words, think of it this way. You have these two sides to egalitarianism. Market This form of market health insurance covers both of them. National health insurance doesn't, or does, it's worse, does the worst job. So 
that to me counts more than the fact that it should count more, I think, than the fact that the guy administering or the woman administering, the, not the one, but the whole group of them administering is going, well, gosh, we're truly trying to help people. Unfortunately, you're going to have to wait three years for your hip, you know, sorry, or go in the supplemental market if you can afford it. I'm being a little facetious. To people, but no, I, mean, I think that's – Does that help? I think the symbolism think, versus substance is the way to, to, to argue on this. Well, also whether or not you get it, as, as you pointed out, and this is something I thought of when I was reading your essay – that that has an aspect of brute luck to it of whether or not you win the lottery of the rationing system or you you know so in the NHS maybe 10 years ago uh they deranked or what I don't know what the official terminology is but they deranked smokers in terms of what you can get for treatment and so suddenly smokers so so then you say okay smoking you, they're no longer part of the the privileged class uh now are yeah are they being deranked like because and then you actually get into this question of like is smoking uh brute luck or is it option luck make it because they they really enjoy smoking maybe so so their life choices went to make themselves feel better but they're you know so, i mean it's it's still a huge problem for them absolutely i'd like to get to the third yeah Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Do you want me to go to welfare or do you want the second yeah, the, problem? The third with? point. Yeah, yeah, the second. Yeah, okay. well, we we're going to go to the to the pr- oh, okay. Well, I was going to – okay. Well, there's another thing on um, – another reason why uh, – so I can do this quickly. It will be faster. Um, that social health insurance is worse and that um, – well, we can make the same point for, about different conceptions of the good with Social Security easily. For Social Security, you're not saving at all. So you have no way unless, of course, you're more affluent – um, whereas in the kind of private system I'm arguing for, which is modeled after the Chilean system that started in the early 80s where they privatized, here's the crucial thing about that. Everybody, virtually everybody gets a pension savings account because you're required to save and there's a safety net for people who don't need it. So you have, you have a lot more ways of translating your choices into, into for the, this. I mean, because the thing about retirement is thinking about your life long term. What kind of retirement I, I, you know, I want? How long do I think I'm going to live? How do I want to allocate savings? So with that, it's even, I think it's even clearer. Healthcare is more. But the other reason is, and this is a very powerful argument for, I think, a compulsory private pension system is, has to do with um, this, the uh, private system makes it much easier for the poor to accumulate assets, real assets and savings. Social Security you do not have a right to your pension. It is not your property. You you do not get to accumulate your wealth over time. Um, this to me is something Galtarian should be wildly enthusiastic about. The poor and the unlucky will get to own a substantial chunk of savings and capital at their debt, and they can pass it on to their kids even better. Whereas with Social Security, you know, I mean, I'm sure most of your listeners know this, you cannot do this. You cannot. It is not. You know, that's it. And when you think about this legally, I'm sure you know the Supreme Court cases, Trevor. Social Security, there have been a couple of cases. It's not. You don't have a right to it. It's not a contractually based thing. You don't have, a, this system, you, you have some. You have a due process rights to some extent, but you don't have a right to right, it. Right, but you don't have it. It's not a property right. It's not a real property yeah. right. But And what's going to happen, if it was, that would be interesting. It'd be crazy, uh, which is why the Supreme Court has said it's not. But like, because, you know, right now it runs out of 
money in 11 years and then automatic well, it cuts. Well, ran out of money actually a long time ago. I know, but I ran out of money a long time ago yeah, when yeah, I read yeah. this today. Yeah, yeah. But automatic cuts yeah, will come yeah, yeah. in and just shave 30% off the top for everyone, right? This is what happens if they don't fix anything. Yeah. So, of course, yeah, you don't, don't have a right to even an amount. Yeah. Financial planner. Yeah. <laughs> Trying not to think about this. Yes, yes. Um, anyway, so that is the second reason. And I am puzzled why egalitarians don't support this. This seems to me real obvious that you'd want – if I can use Marxist language, this is like ending the gap between those that own capital and those that don't. I don't know the figures, but I would imagine even if you're pretty poor and you start saving 5% or 6% in your 20s, you could at retirement be close to a millionaire, I would think. I don't know the exact figures. But I, I, I think, think easily. Yeah. Compound interest yeah, yeah. is amazing. Yeah. 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 And so I would think you think, wow, here's someone that's a low-skilled, unlucky person working at low-wage jobs. And when they retire – they have these assets. I would think you're a egalitarian. You would greatly prefer that. If it is an objection, jump in because this one puzzles me. I mean, I can think of the economic risk arguments. I don't think it's very good. I can think of the last point you make, which is about personal responsibility, which is one that makes a lot of people upset. Would I, I, I've been in these debates and you say the welfare state turns people into, you know, people who don't want to get a job or something. And they get very upset about that. But the, you have some interesting things to say about how egalitarian should go. Yeah. So very briefly, uh, aid, whether it's private or government, can be either conditional or non-conditional, unconditional. A conditional aid is aid which is given if you get into the workforce and make a serious attempt. Unconditional is not. Um both private and government welfare can be either kind. Private aid tends to be conditional. We can talk about the reasons for that. There are some. Okay. So some egalitarians have written on this and they've said, oh, it's clear unconditional aid is better. There's a problem with conditional aid. And you can even go back to my earlier argument. It's going to involve this causal inquiry into whether you're responsible for your plight. And that involves, I think Jonathan Wolf calls it shameful self-revelation. You know, and you think, and you think about it and you think, oh, this sounds right, because didn't Shapiro just say, right, you know, we have this causal inquiry for income. So we're clearly going to have to have causal inquiry for responsibility. And then it sounds shameful. And that sounds like incompatible and ethic of self-respect. Kim Lick has endorsed this argument. Um, so I think the problem with this argument is it's wrong that we would need a causal inquiry. That is appropriate on the, what you might call the donors and scare quotes. You guys can't, you guys, if but imagine me putting air quotes down. But on the recipient side, I think a new issue arises, which is changing the situation of the recipients. Um, even if someone's life up until now has been battered by bad luck, been really terrible, they could now be in a position they could do something about it or they could be placed in a situation where they could do something about it. And the reason I think... Um, egalitarians should want this, is that what is their vision of the world? It's the vision of the world in which people's lives are more influenced by choice than luck. That's the whole point, right? And so you're not going to – one way to do that is to use a phrase – I'm going to borrow this from David Schmitz. This distinction comes right out of David Schmitz's Elements of Justice, if you've read the book. They should want recipients to take responsibility. And that I mean, That's not about praise and blame. It's about – regarding their welfare and their future and the consequences actions up to them and not others. And the advantage of conditional aid has some common sense tests to see if people are willing to do that. One, do they work if they if work's made available? If they, if they can't work or they're not in a position to get a job, can they do things like 
improve their skills or if they have trouble with their behavior or their character, can they do things like do things to improve that? Conditional aid is better because it has those tests. Unconditional aid doesn't. It basically just gives the aid. And so I think that is the reason egalitarians. I agree with Wolf. You don't want a causal inquiry. You don't want the old noisy and you don't want the nosy welfare. Is there a guy under the bed in the days when being unmarried and, and being, a, you know, being a woman was and having a kid was, was that's not the point. The point is there's a work test. And so that is a reason conditional aid is better. Now we can get into private versus state conditional aid, but I can pause here if you want to ask questions about this. Because of oh, the question think, now, which would you want private or state conditional aid? Well, yes, yeah, so you would want – I mean, a private conditional aid is diverse, as you point out. It has a bunch of different characteristics to it. Like you can – church aid can be like, you know, drug test people and where it's super controversial to drug test for welfare. A church can do that and stuff. I mean, that seems quite, quite clear. Um, but there's still – you still have an unconditional safety net. Because a couple of times you've talked about the safety net for health insurance and stuff like this. Would you still have an unconditional safety net at the bo- at the bottom of this? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, the conditional aid in welfare is actually just cash aid, actually. So you still have the unconditional in kind. So like if you look at what happened with welfare reform in the United States, it didn't make everything contingent on work. It made basically AFDC, I think that's the technical term, aid for families, it became temporary for new, but, but things like food stamps would still be unconditional and housing assistance. So to answer your question, Trevor, the cash aid is what is what would change from unconditional, or actually it's changed from unconditional, conditional. Yeah, the basic argument for private is it's more efficient, but I don't think egalitarians are required to pick the most efficient, so I end up concluding on welfare, it's a wash, but that still narrows the gap because libertarians say we want private alternatives. Egalitarians would have to say they're not worse than state. It's just we're not required to pick them. So that's the final final part where there's a narrowing of the gap. Oh, the one other thing I wanted to mention is in the book, I don't just do this for egalitarianism, try not narrow the gap. I actually argue that... Um, a whole bunch of alternatives. There's positive rights theory, communitarianism, certain forms of liberalism. So the project of the book is trying to show, and that's why it's called Is the Welfare State Justified? Because I'm basically saying all of these perspectives should converge on more or libertarian-ish um, institutions. And Max Walensky called it overlapping consensus libertarianism. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.